Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Emmaus Way. Glad you're back with us. I'm happy to be back with you. Um, my name is Brett, and when we start tonight with kind of a, a mellow tune, seems like with the churn- uh, changing of the season, it's a good good time to do that. Um, this is actually a song off of a. Um, I learned it through the Andy Griffith show. Maybe you learned it elsewhere. It's on a, a record that I helped make a few years back at the Gathering Church. And um, it's real pretty if everybody does the harmony. So if you know it, it's real easy. We'll do it twice because it's so short. But um, just sing along if you feel so inclined. Yeah, that low A is going to feed back a bit there. There's a church in the valley by the wild wood. No loveliest spot in the veil. No place is so dear to my childhood as the little brown church in the veil. Oh, come, 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 come. Come to the church in the wild Come to the church in the veil No place is so dear to my childhood As a little brown church in the veil You guys got it. Let's try it one more time. Well, I know it's not a veil that we're singing in, but there's there's trees around. It's an urban veil. There's a church in the valley by the wild world. No loveliest spot in the veil. No place is so dear to my child. As the little brown church in the veil Oh, come, 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 come Come to the church in the wild wood Come to the church in the veil No place is so dear to my child as the little brown church in the veil No place is so dear to my child As the little brown church in the veil All right. Thank you, Brett. Uh, and welcome, everybody, to Emmaus Way. Um, Emmaus Way is a community of people who have been captivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're seeking to live that out here in Durham in our broader community. Um, so it's great to have you here worshiping with us tonight. Um, before I forget, because I was about to, um, the next element in our service always is led by our lovely group of kids here. So they're going to, with some help from Joel, lead us in the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings 
Thank you, guys. So, welcome again. Um, I don't know if I said, my name is Ben. I'm the lay leader here at Emmaus Way. Um, and so, a couple of announcements tonight we'll run through. Um, so, first of all, Brett Harris, great to have you with us. And I understand that you just released an EP. Is it this week? Yeah, last uh, Tuesday. Okay, tell us a little bit about that. It's, uh, it's a digital-only EP. You can get it online wherever you do that. Yeah, and I think we've got. I think we've got your website in the bulletin as well, so you can check Brett out, and I'm sure find links to his music there among other places. Um, And it's a great, always something that we try to do at Emmaus Way is we bring in local artists from the community. We want to encourage you. We're we're engaging with them here, but encourage you to engage with them and their music outside of uh, our Sunday night gatherings as well. Um, A couple other things. So we're going to have this annual Emmaus Way fall tradition potluck on the porch at is it 805 Watt Street it's the Jake's place so Jake's are right over there um, and this is just you know Emmaus Way potlucks are great potlucks people bring great things we hang out on the porch it's a good time if you haven't been here that long if you've been here forever um, come on out after next Sunday uh, evening's gathering and we'll spend some time eating and getting to know each other a little better um, also, if you're new, um, Sarah Busman has <clears throat> kind of taken over interim control of our small groups. Our, our current coordinator is in Scotland, but she will be back. But for now, Sarah Busman tells me that we do have some openings in current small groups, as well as if someone's interested in starting a new one, um, that is something you could talk to Sarah about. If you're looking for other ways to connect with our community, we always have out in the foyer there two cards one of which is green, which gives you a big long list of things that you could do to connect with the Mace Way, volunteer rotations, text group, we have a pub group that meets on Thursday nights, all that information is on that green card as well as people you could contact about those things. And then there's a yellow card if you want us to connect with you. Um, you want to meet with somebody, talk about a Way, you want to be on our weekly um, event email or our social listserv, that sort of thing, you can get set up with that. Um, So one other thing that I will mention, because I feel like I did a good job blowing through those, is I sent an email this afternoon to The Social um, about some partnership opportunities with Reality Ministries. We've just sort of gone through a process of considering where we're going to meet as a community, considering some other space options, and decided to enthusiastically recommit to this one. Um, Two tangible things that you could do to sort of live into that. Um, one is we're going to be scheduling a painting work day. There's some space upstairs that our kids will be using as well as some other space that Reality said, you know, this needs a coat of paint. If you guys wanted to do that, that would be great. So we're going to chip in and do that. Um, if you're interested in do that, drop me an email and I will loop you in on scheduling that. If you like to paint or you're willing to paint, then I would love to talk to you. The second one is... Um, the reality I said to Julie, who's sort of co- our connection with reality staff-wise, I said, what could we do? Like, what are things that are going on that Emmaus Way people could get involved in? And I think knowing Emmaus Way as a community, the first thing she said was, well, we're upping our daily um, programming to four days a week, and we always serve lunch as part of that. We have plenty of food. We've got community partners that provide food for us, but we need people to show up and help prepare healthy meals and then eat them with our friends. Um, Reality Ministries, you don't know, they're trying to develop and cultivate relationships between people with and without disabilities and serve that 
um, community here in Durham. And so this is one of the great ways that they do that. If you're interested in doing that, um, yeah, contact me and I'll get you in touch with how you could do that. They're thinking this could be a one-time thing, this could be a couple times thing, but if that's something you'd like to do, um, or just find other ways to connect with reality, feel free to grab me and I'd be happy to point you in that direction. Anything else that I missed? Okay, well, I'll turn it back over to Brett Harris, who's going to lead us in our songs of preparation. I wanna get it through to you 
For those of you who don't know me, I'm Josh. I'm the arts coordinator here at Emmaus Way, and I'm also going to be leading our dialogue tonight since Tim is in upstate New York, right, doing a wedding um, uh, and shirking his responsibilities, I'll add, uh, parenthetically. 
Um, one of the things I want to just point out uh, before we sort of move on to the piece is uh, I, I love the, sort of the three songs that we had there uh, before the dialogue because I think they introduced three of the really important themes that we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, church in the Wildwood has this sense of uh, not thinking about church maybe with a capital C, but thinking about church with a lowercase c, this very specific church uh, maybe that you have associations with. Um, as someone who grew up in East Tennessee in the Appalachian Mountains, that song seems like churches that I saw growing up, but um, you may have another church in mind. And then with You're Not Alone and Take Up Your Spade, I think we have two themes that are going to come up quite a bit tonight, and that's uh, the idea of community and the importance of hearing one another's voices, and then also this importance of taking action together. Um, so all of those things are going to come up. Um, now is the time of the service where we pass the peace um, so you find someone around you that maybe you don't know, introduce yourself, offer them the peace of Christ. This is a great time also to grab coffee and snacks and all those sorts of things. But before you do that, I'm going to give you a specific assignment tonight during the peace. The peace will be slightly longer maybe than normal. Because we're going to be talking about this idea of geography and sort of locality and how this plays into our identity as a community tonight, I want you, during the piece, to find three people, preferably people maybe you don't know super well, and I want you to have a super brief conversation about your personal geography. That can include places you've lived, can include maybe identities that you have or have had in the past, could include communities of which you've been a part, it can include ways that other people have tried to locate you. Um, I want you to just uh, begin talking with one another about places and locations that have been important to you. Uh, and I'll call you back in about five minutes. So please greet one another and pass the peace of Christ. So for those of you who were here last week... You may remember uh, Tim's absolutely abysmal drawings that I, we made fun of him mercilessly for the next day at Text Team. Um, particularly the dinosaur with pants. I still I can't wrap my brain around <laughs> someone shouting out dinosaur, and Tim was like, well, I'll start with the pants, and then I can draw the upper body. Um, <laughs> But if you remember, one of the things that we were using the whiteboard for last week was sort of to talk about these different uh, models or ways of, of organizing uh, church life. And we talked about using this analogy of a playground, um, this closed set, open set, and relational set, which was sort of the last one. Um, and there was a couple reasons why we did that, um, but primarily I think the reason for beginning to think that way is to start thinking about the ways that our identity as a community is shaped by the way that we choose to organize ourselves, our practices, our actions, uh, and those sorts of things. Um, and, and to emphasize that the ways that we choose to organize ourselves are not incidental to who we are as a community, but they actually are who we are as a community. Um, and and, and uh, we, we wanted to sort of prioritize this idea of action and, and, uh, and sort of deliberate organization over, say, um, rhetoric or words, right? So uh, just to sort of give you an example, um, there is a, a great Marx Brothers movie called Duck Soup, if you haven't, yeah. Oh, yeah, a big, a big Marx Brothers fan here. 
And in one particular scene, uh, Groucho and Chico are doing this sort of misdirection, mistaken identity gag. Um, and the woman they're speaking with believes that one of them has left the room, but the other one sort of pops up from under the bed dressed exactly the same. And she says, I, I thought you left. And he goes, no, I'm right here. And he said, I-, I saw you with my own eyes. And Groucho says, well, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? <laughs> so what we're trying to say in thinking more uh, constructively about the way that we organize ourselves is that we're going to believe our own eyes, um, if, say, capitalism wants us to, uh, to believe that the unregulated movement of money between people creates equality, and yet all around us we see inequality, then maybe we should question that assumption. This is the kind of thing that we're trying to encourage. So, but we also talked about how there's these sort of four plates, and this is the piece that I want to uh, sort of pick back up on and, and, and maybe talk about a little more. We talked about how our identity in Emmaus way involves four plates, but the plates are sort of in tension with one another. And so what I want to introduce is a metaphor that actually comes from the ancient church that will hopefully help us understand uh, sort of how we've put this series together and what we're trying to get at. So there is a fancy Greek word that those of you who have gone to divinity school may know, and this word is perichoresis. Okay. And this is a Greek word that is composed of, we're going to sort of chunk it into two bits. Um, Peri, at the beginning, this is going to be the same root word as our word perimeter. Okay, so it's talking about sort of the outside of a circle. And then choresis is coming from the same Greek root that we get the word choreography. Okay, so dancing. And this word, perichoresis, was used to capture uh, an understanding of how the Trinity works for the ancient church. Okay? So it was used to describe this mutual uh, indwelling interpenetration of the three members of the Trinity. And you'll see that um, the way that this... this uh, particular idea of perichoresis of these three dancing members of the trinity who are constantly vacating the center uh, to leave for the perimeter is actually represented exactly in Rublev's icon of the trinity which Carol Baker has incorporated into the painting that we have over here so for those of you who don't know this painting over here uh, we commissioned maybe six or seven years ago um, from Carol Baker and the circle is uh, a liturgical calendar. It's a visual representation of the calendar. But inside the circle, you'll see these three persons seated, seated at a table. And if you go over there afterwards, you'll see that in the middle of the table is an empty bowl. And so those three persons seated around this empty bowl is a, a visual representation of this idea of perichoresis. You have three people organized around an empty space. So what does this do for us in practice? Why, why use this idea? So the basic idea of the, the, what is sometimes called the dance of God is that we have three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that are constantly pushing and unseating one another from being the sole centerpiece. So if we as a community said... Well, God is purely spiritual. 
Uh, God is something that sort of exists out in the ether. It's maybe a feeling I get. But there's no sort of tangible existence to God. That would be prioritizing maybe the spirit. And as soon as we did that, Jesus sort of comes into the circle and unseats that notion with the idea that God is flesh, is a person. So we say, oh, okay, so Jesus must just, or God must just be some guy, right? We can see there's these stories about him, some Jewish guy who lived in the first century. That's who God was. But then God the Father comes in and unseats that idea because we have uh, a person of the Godhead who is eternal and sovereign. So then we begin to think about God as this transcendent, uninterested thing that created the universe, maybe set it in motion, but hasn't really intervened, isn't really in contact with what is happening now. And then the spirit would come along and unseat that notion. Right? So you can see how in this perichoretic understanding, we have this sort of constant tension, this constant push and pull. And we're always uh, sort of, as soon as we try to make one thing more central, it ends up being shoved out by something else that's equally important. Okay? This is the way that I want us to think about these four sort of plates of identity that we're going to be talking about over the next four weeks. And so uh, let me sort of reintroduce what the four plates are and explain a little bit. But uh, keep that picture in your brain of this sort of constant pushing and pulling um, and and unseating of of centrality. So today we're going to be talking about locality and geography and sort of particularity. Um, Next week we're going to be talking about universality and sort of Catholicity. How are we a part of the Catholic Church with a little c? The next week, we're going to be talking about the importance of orthodoxy and historicity, us as the part of a tradition of Christian practice. And then the fourth week, we're going to be talking about theological curiosity and theological diversity. Okay. So what may be a more helpful way to think about these four weeks is each of these is sort of unseating a particular way that we might be tempted to do community. So I'm going to give you some straw men here. These are not intended to offend the people that, the, that they're characterizing, but to sort of give you a sense of maybe how these tensions work. So the locality particularity week that we're, ta- we're starting this week, you might subtitle it, Why We're Not a Megachurch. Okay. Because what we're interested in is, why is it that we don't want our curriculum in the hands of you know, 100,000 people? Well, it's because we believe that we're particular that we have something to say in our particular context, but maybe you can't universalize what we have. But then the next week, we're going to talk about universality, and maybe that's why we're not a monastic community. We believe that there is something to say outside of the rule of order that would govern just a household of people who decide to commit to to that rule together. With orthodoxy, we might talk about why we're not a Unitarian Universalist community. Right? Why we're a community that believes that it's important to locate itself within a specifically Christian history. But then in the next week when we talk about theological diversity, we'll talk about why we're not a creedal community. Why is it that we don't require you to sign on to a set of beliefs when you walk in the door? So in each of these weeks, what this means is we're going to be getting sort of an incomplete picture each week. Okay, So if you think as I'm talking, he's He's totally missing this sort of other thing. 
It might be that I am, because I, I'm not very good at this, but it might be that we're going to talk about it in the future. Okay, So just to sort of uh, put that idea out there. Um, but I think in addition to the fact that we're going to be working with a somewhat incomplete pi picture, I want you all to be thinking about the ways in which from week to week we might be talking about something that is a priority for our community that either makes you deeply excited or makes you somewhat uncomfortable. With each of these weeks, you may respond more or less positively to the different ideas that we're, we're dealing with. And in some ways, I want us to think about these four ideas in the same way that we always do with our minister's liturgy, which is that we can't all do all of them all the time. And if we could, we wouldn't need each other. So keep the sort of community dynamic of this in mind as well, that as we go through talking about these four things and the way that their sort of push and pull shapes us as a community, um, that you may have favorites, you may have ones that you're not as keen about, but you are part of a community of people who have, uh, who have decided to live into these tensions together. Okay? Does that all make sense? Everybody clear? Any questions about sort of the series? Okay, so if that all makes sense, things are about to make a lot less sense because we're going to talk about this wacky story from the gospel. So the text that we have this week is from Matthew chapter 15. This is a story that we've done several times before, although I think we've primarily done the Mark version. Uh, this is a story of what's often called Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman. Okay. So... Um, I'd like to start with somebody reading the text. So does anybody want to volunteer to read the text aloud? Okay, so there's a lot happening in this passage. And like I said, we have looked at this passage a number of times in the past um, because this is an incredibly complicated and in some ways a very confusing story. Um, we have Jesus who comes off as fairly brusque and uninviting in certain ways in this passage. We have um, a, a woman who challenges Jesus when he speaks in this weird riddle. So there's a lot of different things going on. But the thing that I want us to focus on is this idea of geography, this idea of location. So as sort of a first question, I want you to look at the text, and I want you to name as many phrases, words, markers that seem to speak to you about location. Locating the people, 
locating the action, that sort of thing. Where, what are some markers of location in the text? District. District, okay. Right, yeah, in the specific district of Tyre and Sidon. Jesus left that place. So that place, <laughs> which I didn't notice that, that that has some stink on it. Like, he left that place and came to, yeah. Okay. House of Israel, right, right, right. So we have a people, that's, that's certainly a location. Canaanite. Right, so we have Canaanite. Okay, away, so we have a direction, maybe away from that place. Yeah, other other markers of location. The master's table. Yeah, yeah. So the master's table certainly seems to be a place. Before him, she knelt before him. Oh yeah. So the the kneeling location before him, absolutely. Well, you've got lostness, which is right. Yeah, the lost sheep. Sort of the, the shadow of the place. Right. Maybe they don't know what place they're in. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. That's a great one. Any any other sort of markers of location that you notice? Another uh, sort of two that I want to throw out. Um, one is, I think, location that, that, uh, that you get at the beginning of Jesus' final statement. Woman, great is your faith. That was a pretty specific location, particularly in the first century. So the location of uh, womanhood and of motherhood. This is someone who has a daughter. And then the way I think it's interesting that she locates Jesus in the passage, which is Lord and son of David. Son of David is a location within a particular genealogy. So this is the location that I think uh, we can talk about as well. Okay, so... We see here that Jesus came into this very specific local context. And because of that, he seems to have some pretty, he has to say things pretty specifically um, in terms of how he interacts with people. Um, and I think oftentimes the, the idea of specificity or particularity is something that is seen to somehow like delimit or compromise Jesus' power. Um, But I I think there's an important theological word that we use to describe what it means for Jesus to be specific rather than universal, and that word is incarnation. In some ways, I think that incarnation, uh, we we can see incarnation as the heart of the Christian gospel for a number of reasons. Uh, We talked about this a bit uh, when we did the, the Bruce Springsteen night, uh, the idea of the incarnation is an affirmation of flesh, an affirmation of personhood, and, affir- and here we can see it as an affirmation of locality, an affirmation of inhabiting a community and being able to do it authentically and truly. If God can become a person who interacts with a community, a very specific community, then perhaps... So could we. Okay, that seems to be at least some of the logic that's at work. But I think something else that we can think about here in terms of specificity 
is the way that specificity often uncovers or uh, demonstrates privilege. Uh, And what I mean by this is that so often privilege is marked by a lack of specificity. So just to give you an example, if there was a group of five guys and they got together and played a game that two schools in this area are very hateful to one another about, what would be the name of that game? Basketball. And if five women do that, women's basketball, right? When men do it, it's just called basketball. But when women do it, it's called women's basketball. And it's a different game because men are the privileged category there. Okay. To give you another example, I'm someone who studies music, the history of music. So in the 90s, let's say that you had a band um, that consisted of five guys who all sang in harmony. If those guys were white and they were in sync or the Backstreet Boys, then they would go on the pop charts and in the pop category at the record store. But if those guys happen to be black, like All for One or Boys to Men, then suddenly they don't fit that category anymore. They're on the rhythm and blues charts or in the rhythm and blues category. Even though they're making remarkably similar music, the fact that they are black or white determines whether or not they're in a relatively unmarked category, right? Just music that is popular or a very heavily and historically marked category like rhythm and blues, okay? So oftentimes I think um, we, we consider, I think part of the reason maybe why we consider specificity to be problematic or delimiting of, uh, of power is because oftentimes the things that are most powerful in our world are the things that we have to specify the least. But I want to challenge that idea a little bit. Um, because I think the way, once you start to sort of uncover this privilege that maybe we don't have to think that way. Okay, so let's get specific. You guys all were having conversations. It seemed like a very vital conversation going on in the room. So I want you guys to start talking about your spiritual geography. What are some places that have been important for you, locations, ways that you've been located that have been important for you? Or what are some things that sort of come up for you now that we've read through this passage um, about the way that you've been shaped by being located? Anybody? Well, Zach and we know Brett and Amber went to camp. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and we always knew it was camp. Yeah. But it has a name. Warren Lewis. Warren Lewis Camp okay. in Florida. But it's very, it's shaped, very much shaped all their lives. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, something that, it, almost a sort of vocational thing where working at the camp or attending the camp was, was hugely influential. Yeah. Josh, I was a military kid, so yeah. for me it was like the lack of location. Whenever anybody says, where are you from, it's a really hard question. I mean, I know where my parents live and where I lived for four years before I went to college, but that's not home. So it's, for me, it's sort of the ambiguity also led to just very different experience growing up because I had it. Sure. Yeah. So a lack of location, absolutely, and and particularly the lack of uh, the lack of a clear sense of what that word home might mean, since it's such a hugely operative one for so many people in our culture. Yeah. Who who else? 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and something that uh, if this six California proposal goes through, Silicon Valley may be its own state. So <laughs> if you haven't seen this, there's a proposal to split California into six states. It's a long thing. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah, so, so not only thinking about maybe where you come from, but how where you come from is no longer where you come from. I think that's hugely important. Yeah, Sarah Kate? You talked about the values and implications of being from a place mm-hmm. and what that might mean when you meet someone new and how sometimes we play um, the places where we've lived in the past against where we live now, depending on who we're talking to, sure. to create space. So saying, I've lived in Durham for seven years, or I've lived at, I'm from Durham means one thing, but saying um, most recently I'm from the Bay Area says a very different thing. And how part of that is being able to say something about our identity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and to think about well, I'll save that because somebody may, may may say this as well. But yeah, anybody else? Yeah. I grew up in a Catholic church that was, um, they didn't have a building. It was a community, an intentional consensus community, and we needed schools. And then I moved to the mountains where I became a member of Black Baptist Church. And the structure is significantly different, but the spirit was remarkably in unity. Yeah, so being able to find the commonalities between maybe what, what what you may have been told were supposed to be disjunct locations, and yet you saw them as, as deeply connected, interconnected. Yeah. yeah one of the things I found myself thinking um, was not only sort of where I'm from. I, I said a little bit of this, but I grew up in East Tennessee, uh, went to school in Nashville, and then uh, came here, and but to think about how I have to represent where I'm from depending on who I'm talking to, right? So am I from East Tennessee or Appalachia or the South or the United States of America? Or, you know, there, there's so many different ways of, of, that I might choose to locate myself or not locate myself based on who I'm talking to, right? If I'm talking to someone else from the South, I can't say the South. I have to be more specific than that. But if I'm, and I, if I'm talking to someone from another country, maybe I say I'm from the U.S. Maybe I don't want to say I'm from the U.S. <laughs> maybe I want to be more specific and say, oh, I'm from East Tennessee or I'm from Appalachia. Yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts in terms of how you located yourselves or how location has been important to you? You can play... Those games are contrary every time I open my mouth, it's obvious. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I was thinking um, that uh, when people say to me, where are you from? It's a fairly, it's not an offensive question, right? Right. Because I'm white. But if I was Asian mm-hmm. or Latino, then it might kind of imply, well, what the hell are you doing here? Right. I don't feel surprised about it. Yeah, I think there's such a there's such a huge phenomenon, and this is where I think we talk about the sort of unmarked thing as as 
privilege where, you know, where, where are you from? Like, oh, I'm from Tennessee. And like, because I happen to be a white person, maybe I don't get those questions. But friends of mine who are people of color, right? Where are you from? Oh, I'm from Tennessee. No, but where are you really from? Like, where's your family from, right? But what they're fishing for is not what they end up getting in that question. So yeah, I think that definitely showcases that privilege aspect that we're talking about. Yeah, Mark. I was thinking too of how part of when we're locating ourselves as you know, geographically or whatever, how, how much our story and our narrative is tied into that. Mm-hmm. Um, as I was talking with Connor, you know, we were talking about um, you know, where we lived or where we were from and, and sort of inherent in that was a story you know, of like, oh, well, Connor grew up in, in Canada for part of his life. So what was that about? What was it like? I, I lived outside the U.S. for a little while. What was that about? What was that like? You know, and so, so it becomes part of a bigger thing. It becomes a conversation rather than just saying I'm from this X on the map. Absolutely, yeah. I think that's usually important. Jim? What you've been saying recently is, I think it's in the South where you do this mostly. The question that locates people, or used to locate people, is who's your daddy? Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. It's hugely important. And it's where you see, like, for instance, is it very prevalent practice in the South of naming the oldest son, the first name being the maiden name of the mom, so that you have this strong both maternal and paternal location in terms of family. So, yeah, I think that's a hugely important location. Um, yeah, and I, I was thinking, too, Mark, when you were talking about the idea that uh, it's important when we think about locality that we're, we are thinking about a trajectory that all of us happen to live maybe in the triangle now, but we all come to this place from a host of different places, and that that's hugely important for determining how we engage at a local level. Yeah, Susan. So my um, my graduate school advisor was the, also the chair of the African Studies program at NC State, and mm-hmm. he he was always telling me, Susan, you need to um, figure out who your people are. And you know, I'm kind of interested in this idea of privilege. And not knowing who your people are when you mm. come from a place of privilege because you, it's more, you just, you know, because you locate yourself more generally. You, right. And when you don't live in privilege, I think you locate yourself more specifically. And I think, you know, for him, that was a real, you know, a real kind of, <laughs> he would never say this word, but a blessing in his life because it gave him people and it gave him sure. grounding. Yeah, it's why you see so many like suburban white people go to Ireland every year to try and discover their Irish relatives, right? Because they, they because of this sense of privilege, they feel like they've been cut off from a type of specificity. Um, yeah, I think that's that's great. So just to pivot the question, if there are people who still have uh, things that they want to throw in, they probably will fit in this frame as well. But just to maybe add another wrinkle to this whole story. Given our specific locations and the fact that all of us find ourselves tonight in this room, which is a location, how is Emmaus Way located as a community? How are we located intentionally? What are some things that we do as a community that locates us intentionally? What are things that we do that is locating us unintentionally that we may not even be aware of? Um, what, what, what types of locations does, does Emmaus Way occupy? This, this space was unintentional. Um, <laughs> this was the one space that would work. The sure. only space that we could find. And after a while it became intentional. Mm-hmm. But at the beginning, it was almost like, some, uh, we're going to make this work. We have to. 
Right. Whoever will have us, that's where we'll be. Yeah. No, I think that's great. Yeah. Other ways that Emmaus Way is located as a community. We're located in Durham. Right. So we, are lo- we have made a conscious decision to be located in Durham. And not only in Durham, but in downtown Durham, not in suburban Durham. Yeah. So we're not on the east side of downtown. We're uh, how many blocks from Brightleaf and how many blocks from Trinity Park. So right. that situates us in a certain part of Durham. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So we are in a very specific neighborhood of Durham. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> we're in a safe area because mm-hmm. we can leave our door open, and I never feel nervous about going into my car or anything like that. So that, that's kind of specific, you know. It, it's sure. safe. It's open. We can open the door, and people can look in and go, "Oh, what's going on in here?" And, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Ben, she has something. On both those points, if Tim were here, it's you. And he often does say something where when the main street started 10 years ago, it was a very different Durham mm-hmm. that we were locating ourselves in. And even locating ourselves where we are currently right. meant a very different thing 10 years ago to this now. So in some ways, like, back to the geography sort of shifted out from under us and what. So being located in downtown Durham means a lot different thing than it did in 2008. Absolutely. And this sort of goes back to Jim's comment about not only where you're from, but how is where you are from no longer where you're from? How is that that's sort of changing? Yeah. Yeah. Other ways. Yeah, Wendy. I want to say, you know, it's a change of dialogue. Absolutely. So the university communities make us, uh, one of our locations is that we tend to be a somewhat transient community. We have people who come in for four or five years to do a degree and then uh, and then journey on. I think that's a, a huge part of it. Um, Tim often has joked that we are an over-educated, underemployed community. That's certainly a location that's an effect of the, of the universities that surround us. Yeah, any other ways that we're sort of locating ourselves as a church? Yeah, it's okay. I think we pretty intentionally situate ourselves in, in a larger tradition. So many have come before us. We have one of many that have been practicing yeah, I think that's exactly right. We definitely locate ourselves within a tradition, a Christian tradition, and that's something that's going to come up uh, certainly in future weeks. But I think that is an important location that we have. I would say in the round, too. Like, we're very intentional about saying we want to hear from everyone in this community. And, like, that was what, coming here my very first night, I knew this is where I need to be because, like, these people care if you're here or not. And I remember talking to Dave Ebert and being like, he cares what my answers are to his questions. <laughs> that doesn't always happen. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, this would be, uh, you know, maybe one example of us being incredibly intentional about setting up in the rounds, about placing uh, our conversations in a sort of dialogue every week, uh, about putting art and aesthetic in the middle of our, of our circle, literally in the middle of our conversation. Um, yeah, I think that, that's a hugely important point. Thank you, Amber. Others? I don't know exactly how to phrase it, but I feel like we're not trying to be isolated. Like there, we're, mm. we have connections with Durham Can. We want to be involved with other, you know, communities and missions and things going on in Durham. Mm-hmm. So whether we succeeded or not, our attempt is to be, you know, to not be isolated, to be connected. Absolutely, and this, I think, sort of links in with something that we say every week, which is a way of locating ourselves, is that we're a community that's looking for the ongoing work that God is doing in Durham, um, which is a way of locating ourselves in a community that we believe God's already working in. 
It's not a community that we have to go out and missionize, but rather a community in which God's already at work, and we're looking for ways to join into that work. So I think that's hugely important. Yeah, Brandon. I've been in and out, so if someone said this, I apologize. But we've just spent a year kind of thinking about location. and um, So to be on the other side of that year and to think about choosing to stay here in reality um, reminds me that there's a, a choice to be invested with reality and what they're doing and in a space that's not necessarily aligned with the denomination or a specific church and making this a space that's open to a lot of folks that may not be comfortable um, or may, may be working through sort of histories with certain denominations or whatever. And so I think there's a neutrality to this space that, and also a, a, a choice to sort of invest ourselves with what reality is doing and the folks that they serve. Right, yeah, so locating ourselves in in sort of tight collaboration with someone who's engaged missionally in Durham, but then also not locating ourselves in a church. I mean, you know, this is, again, this I think this perfectly illustrates the sort of tension that, that part of what we're trying to bring out is like, we are a group of people who deeply orient ourselves and locate ourselves within a tradition of Christianity, and yet we sort of ultimately decided that maybe moving into a church space particularly one that was denominationally affiliated, was not what we wanted as a community. So uh, those are both sort of very specific ways of locating ourselves. Yeah, Mark. I was thinking, too, of how, and some of this comes from what Amber was saying, too, of um, we, we choose to locate ourselves in the lives of the people mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, we, we talk about, like, we, like, and I'm sure we'll probably get into this next week, maybe, but... Um, saying that we, we've located in downtown Durham, but we have members like the Thomases who live in Carborough, and Tim and Mimi live in Chapel Hill, and the Baines live in Chapel Hill. And even though we are located in a place, we're, we're locating ourselves bigger than that based on the people that are part of the community. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so our, that's one of the things that we sort of also say, I think, on a fairly regular basis here in Emmaus Way, which is that we're a community that the instant you walk in the door you change who we are. So we're, in that sense, we're radically local, which means it depends on sort of who shows up, who we are as a community. I think that's hugely important. Yeah, Luke. I think one of the characteristics of this space, which may be unintentional, but um, it feels like tremendously agile, right? Like you walk into this space and you say, I wonder what's going to look like next Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I think that some of that, some, some of the things that are, that are unintentional about it uh, that you have in, in most churches is what are all of the images and things that we surround ourselves with that we will then daydream about during church? Right? <laughs> like, like, we don't have the big hulking cross mm-hmm. or the stained glass windows that shape the daydreams here, right? Like, I know there's a basketball goal in this comments. <laughs> and, and this is a wooden floor. And so I, I think about playing basketball in here when I'm doing but, but, but like whatever the, the thing is, like it's like I, I think that this like it, it lends itself to this like this kind of agile way of, of thinking or daydreaming or we're doing church. Yeah, I mean architecture and, and sort of physical space are hugely important for determining uh, not just a, a sort of individual experience, but telegraphing things about hierarchy and theological commitment. I mean, when you walk into a church, 
that has an altar that's sort of set up high and has all of this ornate sort of gold decoration, there's a message being sent there without anyone having to explain to you, like, oh, that's the sacred place where the, you know, you're, you're not allowed up there. That's the message, right? So there are very clear messages that are being sent by these types of location. Yeah, any final sort of thought on this? Yeah, Sir Kate. Mm-hmm. And I just found that so foreign because mm-hmm. we are facing each other right now. It is so difficult not to know one another. So I feel like that's a really important point that I know. I mean, we know all of each other's, we know many of our names. If we've been going here for four or five years like I have, but yeah. um, we are very much in each other's lives. Yeah. Yeah, we definitely have located ourselves within a very uh, sort of close sense of community, within a sense of uh, interpersonal relationships and all of that. Yeah, so I, sort of pivoting out of all of these things, we've gotten a lot of, I think, really important information about our community on the table, about our individual locations. There may be some things that we didn't say, so I think one intentional, unintentional uh, thing about our community is that we tend to be a almost an entirely white community. We're, we're not terribly racially diverse. Um, we may not be terribly economically diverse, um, there are certain ways in which we are unintentionally find ourselves located by virtue of the fact that we're in a certain neighborhood. As you said, we're not in East Durham. Um, and and what, what is good to be aware about, um, and, and, and this is where I'm going to sort of think about some of the ways that this location conversation might touch ground and have impact for the way that we go about the doing of church I think one thing that is good to constantly be aware of in our community is the ways in which our contexts and our individual locations always have a limitation. I am never going to read the Bible or engage in culture as a woman, as a person of color, as a member of the LGBTQ community, so those are not experiences that I can draw on in the ways that I interact. Um, and I think what this requires of us and sort of pushes us into is some humility regarding our knowledge and our experience, particularly, as we've been talking about, around our points of privilege. We are people who have our experiences and our experiences are valuable, but they're not everything. We, we, we only have this sort of particular experience of the world to go on. So, how do we break out of that? Well, one of the ways that we do that in a mass way, and one of the ways that I think is very important, and in, in some ways a way that might uh, be, it might be a way to read what's happening in the Syrophoenician woman story is that we tell our stories to one another. If I recognize that I'm not ever going to read the Bible as, as a woman, it means I probably need to find some women and ask them how they read the Bible. If I'm never going to read the Bible as a person of color, maybe I need to find some people of color and say, how do you read this? What's your experience of this? If I'm never going to read it as a person of the LGBTQ community, maybe I need to talk to those folks and say, what is your reading here? What, what are you doing? What's your experience like? Talk to me about your life. 
And I think this has a dual uh, sort of impact. On, on one level, this type of not just storytelling, but, but asking for stories to be told requires a tremendous amount of vulnerability and a willingness in, to go back to this Trinity metaphor, a willingness to be unseated by someone else. A willingness to have someone else's experience push you out of the center and say, there's another way to look at this. To find yourself back on the perimeter uh, and and to to genuinely be moved by encountering someone else's experience. And that's hard. That, That requires a tremendous amount of vulnerability. But I think the flip side of that, and this is something that I've talked about before, is that in some ways, hearing other people's stories is one of the only ways that we can be really sure that we are not alone, as Mavis Staples said. When we hear other people talk about struggles that they've been through, places that they've come from, ideas and experiences that they've had, one of the most profound things that can happen in that moment is for, us, for, for, for you to recognize yourself in that moment and say, oh my God, I'm not the only one who's thought that. I'm not the only one who daydreams in church, thank God. <laughs> I've thought about playing basketball in here all the time. That's great, right? So it requires a tremendous amount of vulnerability, but maybe we find that we aren't alone. And that's a good thing. And I think the second part of this is that we're cold to be incarnational in the way that we engage in our community. We, Jesus did not stop being a first century Jew from Galilee in order to engage people redemptively. So we don't have to try to be something other than we are in order to engage our community redemptively. But we do have to do some things that are going to be tough. And one of these we've already gone over. One of these things is listening to those people that are around us. Soliciting stories, considering carefully what other people have to say. But another thing that that means is that we're going to have to place ourselves around people that may be the most vulnerable members of our communities. Those whose stories aren't heard very often. Because if we're placing ourselves in conversation with people who are exactly like us, then we're going to begin to think like, oh, everybody thinks this way, right? So we have to be willing to place ourselves in conversation with people who are different than us and with the people that are most vulnerable in our communities. And one of the things that that's always going to imply is that we have to be willing to not only be uh, unseated, as I was saying before, but we have to be willing to be named as the problem. This is something that I feel like I have learned so uh, palpably in Durham Can, and I think Durham Can gives us a really good model here. Um, but when you go into a listening session or uh, a relational meeting in Durham Can, which for those of you who don't know is one of our grassroots uh, sort of political organizations that we, that we affiliate with, When you go into a relational meeting with Durham Can, you have to be prepared not only to hear something that will challenge your experience of the situation, but something that will name you as the cause of the problem that is happening there. Um, Our old organizer, Gerald Taylor, who used to be in charge of the Southeast IAF, 
um, used one of his favorite phrases used to be, we're never going to get anything done because there's too many white liberals in the room. And in case there's a mistake, I am one of those white liberals. That's me. I'm a white liberal. So in some ways, I was implicated in that because I was the one that was stopping forward motion from happening because of the ways that I wanted things to happen. Um, And I had to be willing to listen to those who were different from me and those who were vulnerable in order to understand sort of how that's happening. One of the, and I want to sort of leave us with this, um, one of the ways that Durham Can does this, and we're getting ready to start a new season of uh, these, is we, we hold what are called listening sessions. And so in a listening session, what you do is you gather together a community of people that you're somehow in relationship with. Um, so Durham Can is composed of some congregations, so Emmaus Way might host a listening session. Um, it's composed of neighborhood associations. You might get together with folks who live around you in your neighborhood. And it's composed of other types of organizations. So for instance, El Centro Hispano is a men- member of Durham Can. Um, and in those meetings, we ask generally three questions. What struggles are you facing? If you could change one thing about your community, what would it be? And the third one is, where can we as an organization stand with you in order to fight for justice in our community? I think these are in some ways incredibly banal and mundane questions and questions that are not terribly difficult to ask because all you're doing is asking people to talk about themselves and people love to talk about themselves but they're questions that will I think if you begin to ask them and you begin to respond to people in your community with those questions that will suddenly unlock an unbelievable uh, an unbelievable amount of understanding about the way that we find ourselves located in this community of Durham in the communities that we come from, in the communities that we will go to, and the ways that we can begin to occupy those communities in an incarnational way to bring about redemption. So I'm going to bring Brett back up to uh, play our confession and absolution. Um, And both of these songs tonight are asking us to think about, I think, our individual experiences, the song Confession These Days, Um, is in some ways talking about someone who finds themselves in isolation and how difficult and painful that can be. And then in our song of absolution to be able to see what it might look like to work together. So please join us. Yeah. 
had the chance to Listen with your own heart. 
coisas. When I look back at the Canaanite woman, I'm often drawn to ask, what in the world this story really means? I'm left with questions more than I am with answers. Um, are we the children? Are we the dogs? Who are we in this story? This is a place where someone who doesn't belong engages in a conversation with Jesus and the disciples and shifts and moves their reality. In a moment of rebuke, this woman expands that reality from a specific community, the children of Israel, and claims it for herself and for others outside of that circle. She shows up and changes the community. Her story was important. What I see offered to us in this is the opportunity to become that community, those inside the circle just by showing up and telling our stories and by receiving the stories of those around us, recognizing our place in the story and inviting the stories of those who are not here, those who are absent. We, the church, live as a part of the world, not in some secret connection to God, but with an awareness of that relationship to God. God is always moving towards us and in our particularity, where we live, where we're located, and we're called to respond to that. One of these responses is to move back towards God, and this movement can begin here at the table. God meets us even in the crumbs that were meant for the dogs, and we partake in that relationship with God and one another by breaking bread for one another, saying, the body of Christ broken for you. By taking the cup, uh, the juice, or the wine, and saying, the blood of Christ poured out and shed for you. The table offers a bridge from God to us and to one another, here at Emmaus Way, we celebrate an open table um, where all are welcome. We don't have a fence that around this space. We put it in the middle of the room. Um, we don't limit who you're going to meet at this table. Um, and that can honestly also be a little unsettling because you're making yourself vulnerable. You're opening yourself up to be changed. Come and join our community, your community, to enter into relationship with God and those here in this place. Rich and poor alike, listen, God's love is for us all.